right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect anything different? People know me for broadcasting now. That's 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 almost hysterical to me. Well, it, I mean, I started watching golf probably late '90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Like, I I don't have memories of watching you play golf, and I love. Sure going like doing these setting up these interviews with you guys because it I feel like I just start uncovering this stuff like I was reading we're going to get to the 77 PGA sure reading stories of Gene Littler's quotes after it um, I think about like how we approach uh, media now we would have a field day with some of those quotes and all the things that happened yeah I never saw I don't even know that I saw any any quotes of his well I mean, it was be uh, interesting. something about uh, in the playoff he hit it over the third green at Pebble and he said if it was uh, Palmer's or Nicholas's ball, the crowd would have stopped it, and nobody stopped it. Oh, that was in the, during the tournament. The third, dur- uh, like okay. that was that wasn't playoff. That was okay. during the tournament. Gotcha. Uh, it, it was interesting because in the playoff, we both did the opposite of what we did in the morning. Okay. I spun it off the front of the green in the morning, and I knocked it. I had wedge and knocked it over the green in the afternoon. He hit it over the greens out of bounds in the morning, and he came up short with a nasty line up there. Can you, how many golf shots can you remember from your career? I mean, you remember that that one? You're, yeah. That's your major win. I assume that yeah. one comes to mind quickly. Yeah, almost but. every shot of that playoff and you know stands out. So I can yardages and clubs and everything. Pretty close. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've got a great story when we get to the playoff. Too, so, <laughs> well, know. we could go right now. We don't have to do this. No, go where you, you sure, go go want to. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Let's see. Let's hear your, your great your great story. Well, the, I mean, the the cool thing about the playoff, it was actually the first major conducted at sudden death and we didn't know it as players i finished ahead of littler i shot 70 i actually made a birdie at 18 i'm standing in the fairway i had 92 yards i remember the yardage <laughs> for my third shot at pebble and the big scoreboard behind the green they changed littler from i think six to five or f- seven to six and i'm five standing in the fairway and I, and I just got excited, and I stuffed it to about 18 inches and giggled it in the left edge. It didn't, it didn't exactly go dead center, but it got in, and I had to wait for Nicholas to finish. I'm sitting there with Nicholas staring 15-footer to tie me, so I really didn't want to play Jack Nicholas in a playoff. So, uh, so I'm sitting there, and, and at that time, thinking it's a playoff, I'm standing by the scores tent and watched him you know, miss that putt, you know, and I'm thinking, thank goodness. And then Littler coming up, that was a whole different ball game. I'd played Littler in the playoff. I was okay with it. I knew Gene. I'd play with him the third round. And he was going backwards. Uh, and he was not playing well. I was. I played a very good round the last day. I did not make an eagle till – I mean, a birdie till 18. I eagled both par fives on the front the last round. And my only birdie was at 18. So, anyway, I'm standing there, and we're, I'm thinking, you know, what are we going to do? I'm halfway through a beer. And they say you're on the you're on the first tee. Oh, you didn't know it was no, I didn't know it was a playoff. No way. So they grab us and take us to the first tee, and because we didn't, first off, they didn't know where they were going. The gallery ropes were already down, so it was mass hysteria going down the fairway. Galleries were out of control. Was like the you ever seen you've seen the British Open the last hole when everybody that was what we had for three holes. It was out of control. I mean, you know, (laughs) so we get on the first hole, and the you know you look at. And I, I was a big fan of Sam Snead, so I looked at things. Sam had a, had a, did a book, the Education of a Golfer, and how you study your opponents and see how his routine and stuff has changed. 
Well, I got on the, I had played with Littler the third day, and I got on the first hole in the playoff, and he went from setting up dead square ball forward to aiming right and ball back in the middle of the stand, sitting forward off one. You know, I've all of a sudden I knew he was struggling. Searching, yeah. So well, so you at the turn, I think you had a quote afterwards saying you were hoping to finish in the top eight just to play in the Masters. Yes, exactly. So that. you're you're playing that back nine of a major, trying to accomplish that. That was my goal. And that's, the, top eight, and that's and the major you win. Well, I was in good shape. All of a sudden, about 15 or 16, I've kind of got that covered. Yeah. And now Littler starts going backwards. And I think, you know, I need to – and I, I had a – I was literally standing over a putt from about eight feet for par at 16, knowing I had to make this to have a chance. I made it. And then probably hit the best two iron of my life. You know, you play, you play the 17th hole across the road – the whole location's back left. I hit it 12 feet behind the hole mm. and lipped that on the high side going down the hill. And I thought that was my chance right there and because I felt, I felt like I needed to birdie 17 and 18 to have a shot. But then Littler made another bogey. How does that information you know, weave through the course in 1977? I mean, it's, today it's different. There's electronic scoreboards in a lot of places. There were scoreboards, and there was information going on. Yeah. I don't think I knew exactly how many. Uh, there's always been a big scoreboard at 17. You know, walking from 16 green to 17 tee, there's a school board right to the left of, like, the th- fourth tee. Okay, yeah. And that's been there forever. It, that was still there. So I saw that going to 17. Mm-hmm. Knew I had a shot. How different is hitting a two-iron in 1977 <laughs> versus hitting a two-iron today? <laughs> Probably be like hitting a three-iron today. You know, I just mean with the size of the sweet spot and it wasn't very waiting. big. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it went, but that's what you're used to. Yeah. Um, did that equipment, like the, the way the game was played in in the prime of your era, do a better job of separating out the top players? Like I, the way I kind of I don't see think it, there's any question. Yeah. Uh, you know, and also the equipment wasn't as consistent, so you had to essentially build your own set, get shavs you liked. And the big thing was until Joe Braley came along with frequency match shavs, everybody struggled getting – you know, if you ever broke a 7-iron, for example, well, how do I – today yeah. it's, it's it's a no-brainer to replace it. Back then it was it was major surgery. Like, i got to mm-hmm. find out what I can hit. But uh, the interesting thing, I was playing Spalding's, and this is 1977. I think the clubs I used were like 1967 vintage. Now, you wouldn't find guys using clubs 10 years old today. They change so often. They change a couple of times a year. Well, this was the old burden ball Spaldings that were probably in the 66, 67 range, and that's what I used in 77. My sand wedge that I had in my bag was a Spalding 56 degree with 14 degrees bounce. That was the same sand wedge I used when I won the U.S. Amateur in 1970. <laughs> no the grooves well what did the grooves look like it didn't make any difference the ball was so soft you actually wanted grooves worn today they want grooves back then we didn't you wanted a worn set of grooves so the ball didn't spin too much Mm. with the soft ballada and stuff how long how long would you play the same golf ball i mean those ballada balls how long i went to a deal uh it's interesting i i got on a, a program i had the old ring that used to test whether the ball was round or not okay well, the one thing I discovered early on was, you know, you hit one drive, your ball won't even come close to going through the ring. Really? So, oh, yeah. No, I mean, one drive. One drive. <laughs> I mean, just one shot, and it would go out of round, essentially. So I would play a ball one hole. I'd, I'd get a, a sleeve for nine holes. So I'd play a ball on one, two, three, and I'd mark them one, two, three. 
and then my caddy would rotate them. I'd, I'd play the one ball on four, the two on five, three on six, and one on seven, two on eight, three on nine. I'd get a new sleeve for the back nine. Really? So that's what we did. I told Hogan that one time. I was talking to Ben in his office when I was with the Hogan Company. He said, he said that's a good idea. I, he said, I think I would have taken nine golf balls and played them the front nine and then started over again with those balls in the back. I mean, that was what he thought he would have done. I always think it's the most, the weirdest flex for professional golfers, how few golf balls some of them carry. Like for us, we're like, oh, I got eight balls. I don't know if that's going to last me today. But when you know where it's going, you don't need to uh, replace Well, the balls marked up more back then, the blotter. So, I mean, I was going to always have at least nine in my bag to start around. Well, so – what was it like? All right, let's let's go right into this this incident. I, I'm dying to talk about the 1979 Players Championship, which is for people that don't know was just maybe the most carnage that maybe ever. What I guess that's a question for you. Is it the hardest conditions you played in stateside in the, on the PGA Tour? It ha- it was for several years at at, at Sawgrass, no question. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was carnage. It's a Sawgrass Country Club, yes. not TPC Sawgrass, exactly. Yeah. And uh, we had no win the first two days. I shot. I don't know, 67, 68 or something like that. I don't remember the scores exactly. But I know I had a three-shot lead after two rounds. I shot 76 the third round and maintained a three-shot lead. I think you had a five-shot lead going into the last. I think uh, you expanded no, your it, lead. It was three going okay. last. <laughs> I maintained the three-shot lead, and then I shot 72 on Sunday. I was the first person to ever break par for four rounds at Sawgrass, and I, I, I was five under, and I won by five over Watson. <laughs> The, the, fi- the scoring average in the last two rounds of that event was 77.49 in the third round and 78.6. So what I, what I in reading about this, I was stunned to learn that there was no one ball rule on the tour at the time. Mm-mm. And the wind was so bad that guys were hitting top flights off the tee on the end of the wind holes and putting balladas back in play on the downwind. Yeah, holes. I never did that. I, did, I no. never messed with the top flight. I didn't, uh, I didn't trust it chipping, putting, stuff like that. Yeah. So. Uh, and I could hit it down if I needed to. Uh, one thing I could always do was hit the ball low, so uh, I, I could control my trajectory really well. Huh. So that, to me, that that wasn't the issue. It was just the power of the wind. Uh, before the last round, I'd run into Weisskopf. We were staying in the same place, and he gave me a, a great piece of advice as I was going to the golf course. He said, and, and I always played fast anyway, so it meant that when I made up my mind, I pretty much did it. He said, do what you always do. Make up your mind, play the shot. Don't second guess it today and all this win. Just, you know, come right up with a plan, hit it, boom, go, trust it, you know. Mm -hmm. And I did that all day. And, I mean, there were a couple of times I hit three irons, five irons, literally aiming out over water for the, you know, I said that's the only way to get it close. The ninth hole, for example, I hit three irons, started out in the middle of the water, and it ended up six feet behind the hole. (laughs) But it was just you had to, you know, that was the only way to, you had to just be bold enough to play that shot, and that's what you did. Hmm. So in that in that event, we heard I read a story about in the locker room afterward. There's a barber chair where everyone sat in and just sit and like debrief their round from that day because people were in such. Yeah, shock that, that, that barber day. chair was there forever. It actually got moved to the locker room over at, at, at Players Club when they opened. That was one of the things they took over there. I don't know if it's still around or not, but. That was from, uh, yeah, from, uh, and that was not necessarily that year. The years before were worse. The two years or so leading up were maybe even worse than that because it was four days of that win, not just two. Yeah. 
Well, apparently Crenshaw was the ringleader and decided to put something up on the board with an 18-hole <clears throat> ringer score. Everyone went and posted their highest numbers, and there was double digits on every single hole. Oh, yeah, I think that's <laughs> right. Yeah, the ringer score was off the charts. It was, it was yeah. I, what was so the 10th hole? The 10th hole, there used to be a back tee there. There was, and he had to carry a lake, and it was no big deal normally. But the la- I remember the last day, it was probably the best drive I hit the last round, and I didn't carry it by, by maybe five or ten yards. I mean, there were guys who could not get it over the water. There were guys that were hitting seven irons to the forward tee box. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I drove it over the water. I, hit, I, I was I, I was really driving it well. And I played. I think I played the last two rounds with Trevino, and I felt like I had a big advantage off Lee because I hit probably more than half my tee shots that week off the ground. I had a Tony Penner driver. I had a very straight-faced, straight – sold on the mm. bottom so it sold very nice and i would put my ball literally on the ground and i never had to try to hit it low i you know i would just right to left winds leaves hitting the fade out in there to hold the fairway and i'm just aiming down the right side hitting a bb out there and i'm driving it 50 yards by him well, that's mm. a big advantage in right. that kind of win is it do you look at like the way golf is played now with this equipment as just a completely different foreign game to compared to the skills you guys had to have. Yeah, I mean, a lot of guys would, that that I played with would have done well in, with today's equipment. I think Nicholas and Weisskopf would have been studs today uh, with the equipment. They they both hit it so far and launched it so high back then. Uh, they would have been great. There were other guys that would have done very very well. Watson would have been great in today's equipment all the way through because he always played the ball up. So anybody that hit the ball up easy was their natural shot. Uh, I mean, I struggled more. I didn't hit it high, you know. I mean, I, but I hit it low on purpose because I was trying to control it. Uh, and and really, we all played a little closer. The great drivers back then all played the ball closer to the ground. I mean, Trevino, me, Hale, Irwin, Arnold, uh, guys that really even Nicholas didn't drive it particularly high compared to what you see today. It was higher than say I hit it, but it was on on a very direct line. It it never was floating. It was always a hard flight. So, you know, the guys had – they all found clubs. You know, today's deal is you find a club that you can keep in the air with some spin. So, you got to – back then we had spin. The ball was going to spin. So, it was about getting the loft correct in the driver. You had to learn the face of the driver. You had to know where to hit it on the driver that it would fl- fly a certain way. All right, a quick break here. You guys heard me talk about Xander Shoffley putting a new driver in play for the President's Cup and then at the Century in Hawaii – when he almost repeated his win from last year. Well, that driver is finally actually here. Well, it's not well, we don't ha- it's not actually here yet. We don't have him yet. I'm dying to get my hands on it, but there's a reason we don't have it yet. We're gonna talk more about that later at a later date. Uh, but they are coming, I promise. But anyway, the Maverick driver is a result of Callaway's innovative approach to R&D, designing a new cyclone arrow shape and building a new flash face SS20 with the help of advanced artificial intelligence. A powerful supercomputer tested and refined thousands of virtual prototypes until it created Callaway's fastest, most forgiving driver possible. Maybe the best part of all of it is there's options within the Maverick family. There is the Maverick, then there's the low-spin Maverick Sub-Zero, and the ultra-forgiving Maverick Max. (laughs) Randy, Randy. And artificial intelligence has optimized all of them. New distance is out there. It takes a Maverick to find it. So explore the Maverick line of drivers today. CallawayGolf.com. That's CallawayGolf.com. Let's get back to Lanny Watkins. You said something before we started recording here um, about 
the development of technology and what the what you think the most important part in the history of development of technology was. Well, I think I think the thing that changed golf completely more than anybody wants to. I mean, all you hear today is is Nicholas and, and players talking about the ball's too hot and goes too far. Well, that would never have happened had you know Karsten Solheim and almost you know. Sometimes to me, I, I, I tout it as a greedy old man here. I mean, the two people making the most money in golf at the time were Arnold Palmer and Karsten Solheim, and he wants to change it to, to build, you know, grooves with square grooves. I mean, clubs with square grooves. And you have to understand that we voted on it as tour members way back in the day. Like 90% of the players, 85 90% of the players voted against square grooves. Well, what, explain what's the what – well, square a, a box groove, done. a square groove is one that goes straight down with straight lines and across where, as opposed to a V groove. And the V grooves had to be so far apart. Well, you couldn't play with today's golf ball with the V grooves that I played, you know, in the early 70s, middle 70s, if you will. That changed. You could never have had the golf balls you had today if we still played the V grooves from that we had you know back then they they went back supposedly to v grooves but they didn't have the strict rules they now have more v grooves on the club they're closer together so they've essentially figured a way to cover the club face with more grooves and thus control the ball you know today's golf ball Mm -hmm. i mean because the square grooves did eventually go away was it in 2009 2010 or something they They, did but like i said they they gave the manufacturers leeway to figure out how to make it work so that the ball flew the same. In other words, you don't you rarely see flyers anymore. I mean yeah. we had if we were in the rough, it was gonna fly. I mean bad line in the fairway, it was gonna fly. I mean it doesn't happen today. Yeah. So it is funny to go back and look at clips from the late early like two thousand nine, two thousand eight, that time period and watch guys hit wedges out of the rough when it's wet and watching it backspin 20 feet. <laughs> it was like, okay, something needs to be done about this. I, I just I look at the change in the grooves, and I know like, what you're speaking to is that they maybe didn't change enough quite as much or it didn't affect things enough, but I look at that change as it just kind of washed over. People, it happened. People went on with things. Well, it was a big court case, and, I mean, Karsten won a court case against the tour to keep square What grooves. year was this? I don't remember. Like, Sorry, are we talking way back in the day? Yeah, talking or, way back whenever, it was, you know, because it was a court case. It was yeah. a big court case. The fact that he won that case, I still don't understand how, you know, and that that is the one case that, to me, speaks that as a tour we should make our own rules. Mm-hmm. Like that one case alone back then, that's when we should have instituted. We already had 80% of the players want V grooves. We should have instituted a rule, okay, he can go make all the all the square grooves he wants, but we have to play V grooves on tour. And if guys want to play pink gloves, then he's got to make them with V grooves. Mm-hmm. And we should have done that. Every other sport has their rules. That would have controlled the golf ball. The golf ball couldn't have gone as far afield as it has with – the grooves, you know, unless the groove situation had changed. Yeah, that makes sense. I was more speaking to the more recent change, like when the when the grooves changed again, maybe in 2010 yes. or so. I don't remember a big fuss about it. It wasn't and because they let the manufacturers figure out a way around it. I mean, I've got a set of clubs back, the last set of Hogan irons I used that I won with, I think, and uh, I've got those at home. If I looked at those grooves compared to the, the amount of club face that would be groove-free would be way more – on the old clubs and today's clubs. They've got more grooves on the face. They're closer together. 
they're you know they're v grooves but they're deeper and uh, they yeah. they're just different than what we had yeah no I, I, the way a lot of people talk about technology now they act like it's impossible to change some of these things when i think look at a decade ago they changed grooves and it was not that big of a deal when it happened and well and, and they gave the manufacturers leeway to figure yeah, out a way around them. exactly so that's that's what happened so i was gonna plan to start with this and we got going uh, on a lot of different things but i want to go back 1972 you're 22 years old, Sahara Nevada Country Club. Take us there. A rookie, rookie on tour, taking the lead. Who's who's nipping at your heels? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, it was close. I actually, uh, there's a great story here. George Newson had won the week before at Silverado, uh, Napa, California, okay? And and George was leading me by three shots going the last round in Vegas at the, at the Sahara Invitational. And George had a... Let's say George liked to drink and party and gamble, okay? Well, they carried him out of the casino like three or four times the night before the last round. You know, he'd go up, his room sober up, come back down and gamble and drink some more. <laughs> and, I mean, the stories on George Newton are legendary. You know, if you know from that, you know, there was one time he went to the first tee, looked at his tee shot, stood over it, looked at it again, bent over and picked it up, said, not today, boys, and just walked <laughs> off. You know, I mean, G- George did stuff like that. He was – he was uh, he was the guy I loved to watch play because he could really strike the ball. So he kind of took himself out of it. He was still in a celebratory mode from the week before. <laughs> so I ended up – I'm standing on the last tee, and I think at the time I had a one-shot lead over Palmer and Nicholas. I think Nicholas hit it out of bounds on the last hole, and maybe he made a big number on the 18th hole. And you intimidated <laughs> Nicholas a lot in your career, it looks well, like. I don't think I <laughs> ever intimidated Jack. But we got uh, – I got on the 18th hole. I was playing with Art Wall. I remember I was playing with Art Wall. I'm standing 18. I've got a six-footer on the par five for birdie. And right as I'm getting over the putt, the crowd starts going nuts. Arnold has hit into me. <laughs> Arnold hit a drive, a second shot in the fairway, trying to get on the green in two while I'm standing over my putt. And it was a false front. The green rolled up on the front of the green and rolled back down, so he was a good 80 feet or so from the hole. Art Wall was so hot. He was, he was pissed, and he said, "Knock that in." He was, he he was not a fan of Arnold Palmer at that time. He thought it was very rude. I missed the putt. Arnold took three from the front edge, and I won by one. <laughs> and Arnold was not happy. You have to understand, I was on a Palmer scholarship at Wake Forest. I was going to get to that. So yeah. I was on the Buddy Worsh Memorial Scholarship. I played with Arnold the first time when I was seventeen in an exhibition in Richmond. So I was on his scholarship. I had won the U.S. Amateur in seventy. The Wake Forest team, I left after my junior year. Had I stayed, that team was absolutely loaded with Jim Simons, Eddie Pierce, and guys. You know, we had a, had a great team. But I, I I was broke. I was married and broke, and I needed to make some money, so I turned pro. And uh, actually finished third in the original Disney tournament, 71. Made $8,850 finishing third. Nicholas won. Beeman was second. I tied Arnold for third. That eight eighty eight hundred fifty bucks got me through the winter. I was dead broke. Really? So, yes. So uh, anyway, so well, he was upset. He was not happy that I cost him a win, and he was also he was upset originally that I hadn't stayed in school. Yeah. So he was not happy on a whole bunch of accounts, and that day was over. I remember reading. I was looking reading that article and about you know you. It's like it, it talks about you beating Arnold Palmer fresh off the, having the Arnold Palmer scholarship. He had to be looking around like, wait a second, I kind of created this problem. Well, he was. Myself. I was still supposed to be in school according yeah, to him. I didn't realize that. Oh yeah, I, I was. Well, what would have been my 
senior at Wake Forest, I was 10th on the money list on tour. What was the path to professional golf like back then? I mean, what is uh, – and I want to get to kind of the week-to-week, how you guys – how you qualified for tournaments week to week as well, but how did you get to the tour and how did you know? Well, there was a qualifying school. I yeah, mean, that's even it. back then. And the qualifying school, all it did was my Q school had 20, you know, we had, we only had one regional, not two. We had a regional, which I won the regionals at Tanglewood and Winston Salem. Interesting. I played the first two rounds with Ken Harrelson, the Hawk, the baseball oh, really? player. He was in the, he, he made the first player. round back then. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. DJ's a White Sox guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I played with Ken the first two rounds, and he actually got to the final that year. And uh, so, my cool, we had uh, 23 guys in ties, and with 23 on the nose that made it. I mean, and that school was uh, me and Tom Watson and uh, John Mahaffey, David Graham. Uh, Leonard Thompson, Alan Miller, who'd won everything there was to win as an amateur. He won on tour. A number of other guys that won on tour came out of that school. So it was probably, when you look at Hall of Famers and Majors won, that's probably the most successful tour school ever. Yeah. So you could just sign straight up for Q school, right? I mean, did you need to qualify or anything like that? No. Just pay a fee? Pay a fee. How many people would be at Q school back in those days? You know, I don't remember it being there. I think there were only three or four regions around the country. Okay. That, so it wasn't as big as it is now. Mm-hmm. And once we got there, the 23 and ties made it. But all that got you was a chance to go Monday qualified. That's what I wanted to get yeah, to. The all-exempt tour didn't come into being until the eight, early 80s. So how many people were exempt on a tournament-to-tournament basis? Well, top 60 and ties from the year before. but if On you the were, money list. On the money players. list. But if you were in a tournament, you let's say you Monday qualified and you made the cut. If you made the cut, you were in the next week. Okay, gotcha. So I was, was going to wonder how that works because so if you play the weekend, how the heck do you make it there for the Monday exactly. qualifier? Exactly. So if you if you make the cut, you're in the next week. So and as it started out for me, I had because I'd won the amateur and play well, I had a sponsor's exemption straight to Napa after Q school, which I missed the cut. Then I had another spot. In Vegas, I was friends with Buddy Hackett way back in the day. Well, Hackett got me a spot in the Sahara Invitational. Oh, wow. And I finished ninth and won my first check. I finished ninth, won $3,300. What's that What's that worth back then? I mean, how much does that change? Not change your life, but I mean, how yeah, happy you gotta, are you? I was trying to avoid. I had a guy that wanted to sponsor me, and I was trying to avoid having a sponsor. I wanted to do it on my own. And I think between with all – I made enough money to stay afloat with the 3,300 there, I finished, uh, we played a tournament in, and I made the cut in all these tournaments. We had a tournament in Bahamas, one in North Carolina. Uh, I think there were like six tournaments I played in. First one I missed the cut was Napa. Then I made the cut in all the others and played well. And like I said, Disney, I finished third and won 8,850 bucks. I'll never forget that. It got me through the winter. That's amazing. So, well, what is what would a sponsor look like back then is it like is are they taking shares of your earnings if you earn it or what probably a percentage yeah okay a lot of guys that started out friends of mine started out with sponsors and as they started playing well they tried they they bought them out Mm -hmm. or stuff like that because invariably it was cheaper to you know yeah if they were good guys now if it was a guy sponsoring a really really good player who's going to be a big star they didn't want to give it up. Right. So, you know, but, you know, that's – I had a guy that was a good friend who was going to take care of me. 
but I didn't want to have to do it. I wanted to be on my own. That's. I feel like we should almost do a separate podcast sometime on just like how people finance the beginnings yeah, of their and careers. I, and I had actually gone and played. I turned pro in after the NCAA or after the Virginia State Amateur maybe. And then I, the very first tournament I ever played in was the Virginia State Open, VSGA Open. Uh, first prize was $1,000. I won. I beat my brother by a shot who was still an amateur. That was at the Country Club of Virginia in Richmond. I then went to uh, – I played in two tournaments in Maine, the Maine Open and the Bangor Open. I drove up there. Uh, my buddy loaned me a car. To, I didn't have a car to go that far, so I had to borrow a car to get up there. So I drove up to Maine. And I, I won, I think I won the Bangor Open, shooting, finished up shooting 64-63 last two days and won by a shot or two. And I was runner-up in the main open, an amateur one, and I beat Jim Dent in a playoff for first prize. So both those checks were about 2500 3000 or so. Between that and the grand, that gave me enough money to get through Q School. Wow. So I mean, I'm, I'm on a shoestring budget. I was gonna say, what happens if that if that doesn't work out? What do you What are your options? Well, I had the guy sitting there wanting sitting to sponsor the sponsor. Me. Okay, going that. But yeah, that's and what and he had, he had already. Uh, I was representing a club he had in Winston Salem called Bermuda Run, and I had a place to live out there because of that. So okay. that's what uh, it's more so in your era than today. Travel is more simple now than it was. I would say even in the, in the 70s, but you're not you. You don't have to like just be good at like your home course. You gotta like take oh. your show on the road, learn a course quickly, and beat everybody. Like go beat a ton yeah, of people. Yeah, I didn't have a tour cat. I mean, it was you picking up caddies every week. You know, who knows what you had? And these kids have they all have professional caddies by the time they're playing anything on tour. Yeah, you know, like because the deck is just stacked against you to start out. Well, I think the it's... good thing I had going for me is when I won the amateur in '70, I played in. You know, I was I played in a bunch of pro tournaments as an amateur. Uh, the first one being the Heritage in 1970 uh, at, at Hilton Head. Played that fall. I played, you know, I finished second. Bob Golby won the tournament. I was, you know, second. And, and the next pro was four shots behind me. So, you know, that told me I could play. Then I finished the other big one. I, I played in a couple other pro events. I played in the Masters twice as an amateur. But the other one I played in was the U.S. Open in 71 where Trevino and Nicholas played off. Well, my one of my college teammates was in the last group. Jim Simons was leading one of the last round Whoa! as an amateur. He played the last group with Trevino. He ended, up, he ended up doubling 18. If he'd birdied 18, he'd have been in the playoff with Trevino and Nicholas. He doubled 18 and finished fifth. I finished 13th. The – the big part about finishing 13th there in 1970 was when I turned, or I guess it was 71 actually, the 71 Open, finishing 13th there, my rookie year on tour, that finish got me in the Masters and the U.S. Open as a rookie on tour. Wow. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. I go to the Masters, all these old guys, you know, what are you doing here, kid? I said, you remember that U.S. Open thing last year? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, I earned my way in there. It yeah. wasn't, you know. Your first Masters, was that your first time at Augusta? I went, we went down and played before. Okay. Uh, we had uh, uh, a Wake Forest alumnus that was actually Clifford Roberts' tax attorney and lived in Augusta, a guy named James Johnson. And Jim Simons and I were both in the Masters. Actually, the first year it was just me. The second year, Simons and I went and played. But I went down. Once you're in the tournament, you can go play. 
you don't have to be with a, a member, but you have to let them know you're coming. Mm-hmm. I think I played there beforehand. But I had great practice rounds. I knew some of the guys. I played with Arnold in practice round. I played with Sam Sneed in a practice round. So, I mean, it was wow. in my very first round at Augusta in the tournament, I played with Jackie Burke. The one thing I remember about that round was I got on the second hole. I'm standing by the bunker at two right on the hill, and I'm waiting on the people on the green. And Jackie says, go ahead, son. You're not going to bother him. I said, okay, Mr. Burke. And I whipped this three-wood that went right between Tony Jacklin's legs while he was putting. So, <laughs> it was a nice shot, son. I think you better go apologize. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mr. Burke. <laughs> did you tell did, when you got up there? Did you tell him I was I was told I could go? Oh yeah. <laughs> then the, the coolest thing was the second round. I got paired with Gene Saracen, so I played in the Masters with wow. Gene Saracen. What year? This was this was 1970. I was an amateur. 70. Okay. And I had enough presence of mind that when I got to 15, I said, Mr. Saracen, would you walk across your bridge with me? Now think about that. If that'd been today, it'd be on YouTube somewhere. I'd actually have a record right. of it. But you know, nineteen seventy, there wasn't any such thing. Hmm. But I play. I walked across the Saracen Bridge with Gene Saracen. How old was he in the Masters? Had to be late seventies, eighty-ish. I wow. would assume. Wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah. What? So you he, had... he, I, I remember he shot seventy-four that round. He played very well. Shot his age? I don't know what his age was, but I remember he shot. I remember I, shot, I beat him, but it wasn't by much. <laughs> what uh, you had? A, you had a lot of success at Augusta National. It was in a very tight time frame into the nineties. What? What did something click for you at that golf course in that time period? What? Was yeah, it? I, I quit trying to do what everybody said you should do and hit it below the hole, hit it in places, and I just played my game. Uh, I was more aggressive off the tees on sight lines. And I went at every flag instead of trying to put it on the fat part of the green and putt uphill. I, I figured out that I could make way more downhill six footers. I don't care how fast they were than I would uphill twenty and thirty footers. And I started having good finishes. Huh. Almost every description I can find of your game by anyone that ever watched you play, and of course we've never actually seen you play, but it is the aggressiveness and the firing at flags and the fearlessness that came with your game. Well, is that something you always had? I think a lot of it goes back to my roots. The, the course I grew up on in Richmond was uh, had very, very small greens. And I think I just got to the point of going at the flag because the green was so the greens were so small and so severe off the edges. They were push-up greens, so if you missed a green, it was a tough chip bouncing into a bank and mm-hmm. popping it up, stuff like that. So I think from day one, it was the only way to shoot a score. Um, I was never a great putter. I wish I'd been a better putter. I actually got my putting straightened out by Phil Rogers about 1981, and then I had a great run on tour after that, starting in 82. You know, I won three times in 82, two in 83, three more in 85, and uh, a lot of that I credit to Phil for helping me. The mistake I made was I thought, okay, I've got the deal. I thought I could do it on my own. I should have been back to Phil about twice a year for refresher courses and what did you Technical struggle with? Stuff. Yeah, I'm just, just you know, probably uh, I just missed. I, I missed too many. I had so many makeable putts. I just didn't make enough that because uh, yeah. I hit so many good iron shots. It was kind of like I never took advantage of. And when the putter was hot, I won. Would your would, would your playing like the the other top pros on on tour? Would they would they rib you about your putting? Was that like a no? Back, no mean, it was Johnny a, Miller used to yeah. He yeah. made fun of my stroke when I first came out. Yeah, and he said yeah, it looks like some kind of Muni Mallard putting stroke. <laughs> yes, What's, he uh, said I wouldn't teach that stroke to anybody. But it was, <laughs> he made fun of it. But what uh, what's you do you have a go to uh, Johnny Miller story? 
Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we played uh, – we had the same manager when I came on tour. Johnny Miller, Jerry Hurd, J.C. Sneed, and myself all had this – even Sam Sneed, Greer Jones, Jim Simons. So we all played a lot of practice rounds, did a lot of outings together. Well, Hurd and I played with Miller all the time. And Miller, even back then, before every shot in a practice round, he was like, well, I'm going to hit this five feet left of the hole. It's going to fall to the right and be – you know, right in there, perfect and stuff. And he he would describe shots before he hit them in practice rounds. So we started calling him the man with the plastic arm, always patting himself on the back. That, I can attribute that one to Jerry Hurd because he called he basically called Johnny the man with the plastic arm. So, but but Johnny was, and still is to this day in my mind, the best I ever saw play for a period of time. Wow, that, that much better than just that, he that hit period it of time. So good, his natural shot with his release and the grip as weak as it was in left hand and where he put the club, he just hit it dead straight. So he, And he knew he, he, if he hit it solid, it was going to go – wasn't going offline. So he just aimed at every flag. I mean, look at the numbers he shot for years. It yeah. was incredible. From what I've heard from people, the way I, the best way to describe it is like guys like Palmer and Nicholas the, and Player and, and those had longer sustained success. But like the best stretch, and maybe he didn't even get the most out of it during that stretch of it, it was that the people have seen played was Johnny Miller. I don't think it's, I think that's a, that's a good analogy. Yes, yeah. there's no question. Um, uh, he, he, you know, and for who knows why? I don't think he was ever a good putter, despite the scores he shot. He just hit it so close. I know at least two times. I know one time at Napa, and one time I was playing with him at Hilton Head that he made holes and won the last round. I mean, that doesn't happen right. once in a career or ever. When you're leading the last day, he did it at least twice, maybe more. Yeah. I mean, that's how good his iron shots were. I mean, it was, you know, holy stuff, whatever. We, we've we heard, like, back in the day, necessarily, when you, when you were on tour, that, like, rookies would be in, intimidated by you. Why do you think that would be? I have no idea. I, I mean, I wasn't <laughs> – I was never out to try and intimidate anyone. But if that was another club in my bag, then so be it. I mean, I, I, if I if it gave me an edge, I would take it. I, it was it was a little bit more cutthroat out there back then because you're playing you're playing twofold. You're playing number one to stay on tour, and you're playing number two to live, mm-hmm. pay bills, and put food on the table. I mean, you know, I, I look at at the checks I won when I beat Arnold by a shot. I won twenty six thousand. When I won the Byron Nelson at Preston Trail. 1973, I won 35,000. When I won the PGA in 77, I won 45,000. I mean, you know, I was, I set a record my rookie year for money won by a rookie at like $116,000. That was, that was with a win in, in four seconds. In 73, I won like 205,000. That was a rookie, a record for a second year player. That was with two wins, about four seconds, and 14 top tens. And I'll you know put that in today's figures, right. and you, you'd have about seven million dollars. <laughs> but I won two hundred thousand. Did it feel like a lot of money? Then? Oh yeah, yeah. When, you, when you came from nothing, which I did, yeah, it, it seemed like a lot of money. Well, what is your background? We did, we kind of glanced past your <laughs> early. I'm Richmond, Virginia. My dad was a truck driver. Essentially, my mom, school teacher, later became a grammar school principal. They probably never made thirty thousand a year between them. Um, grew up in a house with my parents, grandparents. Three kids, one bathroom. So, I mean, it was not blue blood. Uh, my dad had gotten into golf when he came back from World War II. He only had a high school education. When he was gone all week driving trucks or working, I didn't get to see him. Now he was playing golf on weekends. So I said, Dad. And so when I was about seven years old, I started pulling his cart 
I'm at a public golf course. And I said, this looks like a cool game. So he mm-hmm. got me a set of clubs. We started. They joined a, club, a brand new club on the south side of Richmond, Meadowbrook Country Club. I think it was 250 bucks to join. And the pro there loved kids, took my brother and I under his wing, and that's where we spent all our days all summer long was just playing golf. Were you a natural then? I don't know about a natural, probably. I was, I was a good athlete. Um, my, and I also had, I think the competition added to it. We had a bunch of kids in our clinic, probably 10 kids that played, and all played pretty well, and it was pretty competitive. Plus, you throw the fact that my brother was there, and we're 18 months apart in age, and he played full-time. So, you know, think of that competition. You always want to beat your little brother. So as he got better, and, I mean, when I won the Virginia State Amateur 36-hole final match play, I beat my brother in the finals. <laughs> That's awesome. I won my very first pro check I ever won, the Virginia State Open, by one shot over my brother. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, there's we played a lot of rounds together, and Bobby was very, very good. This is a question that I've asked a decent amount of of players, and I I never seem to get a good answer, but I'm going to keep asking it. There's a time point you go from playing, you know, the Virginia State Open to, you know, you're beating Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus on tour. So there's a lot of things that happen between that, I think. So – at what point do you realize how good you are? Because I imagine when you're playing the Virginia State Open, you don't think, like, I'm going to be one of the top, you know, whatever, five, ten players on tour. But you you had that potential. I, mean, I already had realize? that. I already felt that. You did? Okay. I felt it uh, when I was at Wake Forest. I had enough success, I mean, in, in college at Wake Forest. I made my first Walker Cup team as a freshman at Wake. I won the Southern Amateur when I was 18 years old before I ever went to Wake. For the first time. Mm-hmm. And then in, in 70, I won the Western Amateur, the Southern Amateur, the U.S. Amateur. You know, yeah, I won about everything. To, and I had I had a year where I won everything I played in. And if I didn't win it, I was runner-up. So, I mean, as an amateur, that was pretty good. So, and then the fact that when I finished second at the Heritage in 70, two things about that. The fact that I finished second, okay, and I'd already won the Amateur. But the last round of that event, I played with Arnold Palmer, here's Arnold again, <laughs> and Bob Murphy. And I double bogeyed the 11th hole and shot 68 the last round, playing with Arnold as a 20-year-old kid, okay, in, yeah. a, in a PGA Tour event. Well, if I, if I can do that, then I know I, I, in my mind, I had no doubt I could go do it. Yeah. What, did he say anything to you after that round? You can remember? <laughs> Just nice playing, kid. I mean, you know, that was about it. <laughs> Kept it simple. What? Let's talk about the USAM. Where did uh, Where did you win the USAM? And what year? I won it at Waverly Country Club in Portland, Oregon, 1970. Uh, it capped off a big year for me. I, you know, like I mentioned, I won the Southern, the Western. Uh, had been runner-up in Sunny Hanna Porter Cup, runner-up in the NCAA. Uh, you know, I had a really good year. Played in the Masters already, so. It was just a really good year all the way around. It was down. It was kind of. There were a couple of really, three or four really good players. Crenshaw was just starting to come into his own that year. He wasn't a factor. I think he missed the cut. But he had Alan Miller, who had won his third straight transmiss at match play. Tom Kite was right there. You know, it seemed like every time Tom played well, I beat him. I beat him in the semifinals of the Western Amateur. He was runner up to me at the Southern, and then at the U.S. Amateur, it was he and I. The you know, the last two days, essentially. I was five back going to the 54th hole, par five. He makes bogey. I hold a 70-yard wedge for three, and now I'm only two back. So then I birdied two and three to start the next day, and we were just back and forth the whole day. And yeah. we, I had him by one shot going to 18. He's got a six-footer for birdie. 
I had a twenty footer and I made it. So I won by a shot. <laughs> so you, you, when I asked earlier if you had a good memory of all the shots you've had, that sounds like you pretty much certain ones. I have real good memories. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we slide into, uh, I want to talk to talk about some uh, your broadcasting career and whatnot. Which the longer we talk about your playing career, I'm sure my comment on saying my generation knows you as a broadcaster has to just be like, <laughs> what the hell, man? Because you played, you had at least twenty starts for twenty five consecutive seasons on the wow, PGA Tour, yeah, and I. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't know, but how many starts? I know that um, I got 21 tour wins, I think 22 seconds, something like, uh, you know, I think it's like 56 top threes. I don't know. There's a number in there somewhere. There's something. 692 career starts, and yeah, 56 finishes in the top three, and you made 486 cuts in your career, which is, I just, yeah. the amount of years and, and the, the travel and all the stuff that goes into well, the longevity of it, and the fact that I fought so many injuries throughout yeah. what I did, you know, because of that. I mean, I had different things, and I, I never thought of myself as injury prone. But uh, you know, even early on, I had some issues. Yeah, because you had a like what gallbladder surgery, gallbladder and appendix in '74. What's that? The, what's surgery like in the in the '70s? I mean, well, gallbladder. I mean, I remember Johnny Miller had it done years later. Had his gallbladder taken out, and it was done laparoscopically, and he, like, played in the Canadian Open two weeks later. Mm-hmm. I was in the hospital two weeks. I've got a 10-inch scar in my abdomen where they cut through me to get it out. It took up my gallbladder and appendix back then. <laughs> I mean, were you – is it a nerve-wracking thing to go – I mean, these no, days I feel it's like just it's just what it was. I mean, I had yeah. no choice. It was uh, – I never had – I knew I had some issues with that, mm-hmm. but I, I remember the uh, – I had a gallbladder attack, which was uh, basically a gallstone slipped into the duct. And that happened to me. I was in a hotel room by myself at Disney at the Polynesian Hotel. I'm playing with Arnold Palmer in the team championship. That was probably one of the coolest weeks of my life, and I wasn't about to let that stop me. But it hit me at about 5 in the morning, and for two or three hours, I I couldn't reach the phone three feet away to call anybody for help. Jeez. I was just doubled over and could not move physically move and i uh, played that week and the cool thing was <laughs> I, was i mean I, I played with arnold every day as my partner arnold palmer was my partner for seven straight days jeez i mean and that was that's probably the one time and we'd played a lot of golf by that time together money games and and what have you but that week was you play with somebody that many days in a row you see what makes them great you know, even though he was still – I mean, he won a terminal tour in 73, so he could still really play. Yeah. I've read a story somewhere about, you know, you guys playing money games, and there was a day on tour you guys played a 36-hole oh, yeah. day practice. Oh, yeah, Town. Yeah? Yeah, because, I mean, happened? it was – it was the, the game – we had a standard game. It was Bert Yancey and I played Weisskopf and Palmer. And we had a standard – We it, it wasn't big money. It was, uh, you know, $20 automatic one downs. But we also played the other two guys the same bet. So everybody had three of those bets going. And we needed an accountant to figure this stuff out, you know, going with us. But Yance and I, it was a great year, 73. I had a good year. Weisskopf had his big year. He was playing great. Yance, he was playing great. And Arnold had a win that year, so he was playing well. So the quality of golf was outstanding. But Yancey and I always seemed to get in their pocket. Uh, Bert Yancey was the best partner you could ever have because I don't think he ever missed a putt inside 12 feet. Really? Uh, it, so it was, and he hit every fairway. So it was, and I made a lot of birdies. So we were a good team. We played at Hilton Head, teed off about 10 like we normally did, and we won. Arnold said, We're going to go to emergency nine. 
Well, if the king says you're going to play an emergency nine, you go. If we played nine more, we beat him again. We're going nine more. I said, what do you got to get him before it gets stark? I don't care. We're going nine more. So, Did you beat him on the last nine, too? Oh, we beat him the last nine. We played the last, <laughs> played the last two holes in the dark. But we beat him, yes. Oh, that's a great story. You don't see too many uh, thirty-six hole runs these days. You mentioned something we uh, we we that we glanced over for the uh, the PGA Championship, the playoff here. You sound, it sounded like you had a good story to tell regarding that one. Well, as we're going down the first fairway, uh, I, I tell you the uh, gallery ropes were down. It was out of control. Uh, Littler and I both hit four woods up one at Pebble Beach in the fairway, and I go. To, I had a caddy by the name of Ralph Coffee, and Ralph tended to stutter just a little bit. So I said, Ralph, what we got? Ralph couldn't get it out. He couldn't talk. He was so nervous from this with the stuttering. I said, yeah. Ralph, write it down. Oh so he he had to write the yardage down. You talk about the conversations caddies had today. I had to have my caddy write down the yardage <laughs> on the first hole of the playoff. Did that make you more nervous? No, it probably loosened me up because I was laughing at him. <laughs> so I was fine. I hit it right over the flag, over the green. I actually made a 15-footer for par to stay alive on the first hole. Uh, down the hill. I think Littler thought he had it one. He had a tap in for his par. Mm-hmm. He did it on the green. Then we both hit it on the second hole in two, par five, and we both two putted for birdies. Mm-hmm. I actually hit the hole for Eagle, and he ran it about four feet by yeah. and made it coming back. And then three, we, we hit good drives, and he hit it over the green, and I, uh, he hit it short of the green, mm-hmm. and I hit it over the green. And walking on the green, I saw his lie. And it was gnarly grass growing into him. I knew he had no chance of getting it close from that lie. And I had a, I didn't have a good lie, but I gouged it down about six feet. He left it about 15, missed it. I made mine in one. PJ Champion, $45,000. Forty-five. That got you a Ryder Cup spot. It did. That was the one thing they told us on the first tee. He said, by the way, whichever one of you guys wins today is going to be on the Ryder Cup team, 77. You will knock Al Guyberger off the team. So, so Al he was, was gone, no matter what. and either Littler or myself was going to be on the team. Well, they said that before the playoffs? Yeah. <laughs> Told us on the first <laughs> Like team. you didn't have enough pressure on you as it was. You know what? It was kind of cool to know, but uh, ended up being a great team to be on. I played on a Ryder Cup team with Jack Nicklaus and Don January. I had Hale Irwin was on that team, uh, Ed Sneed. Watson and I were the babies. We were both, I think, 26 or 7 at that Ryder Cup. So. And that was your first one? Yes. And my favorite at, at Lytham St. Anne's, which was outstanding. You have a – we got to talk about your ace on the first hole at Lytham too. But <laughs> but my favorite part of that win, too, is you got a 10-year exemption with that PGA Championship win. I won three tournaments in a space of 18 months that each one of them was a 10-year exemption. <laughs> Did they run concurrently? or No, they didn't. <laughs> I, I won – I won the PGA in 77. Two or three weeks later, I won the World Series of Golf, which was also a 10-year exemption at Firestone, where I won by five shots over Weiss Golf and Irwin. And then I won the Players in 79, which was another 10-year exemption. 10-year So all three of those carried it, but I, I, all I ended up getting was obviously the Players, but I never I never really needed it because I played well through yeah. that stretch. God, that's that's absolutely crazy. When did you know you wanted to get into broadcasting? And and was that something you always, always thought of, and when did you know it was time to do it? I never knew that I wanted to. Um, I assumed I was just going to go play – Champions Tour, Senior Tour, and you know that was going to be it. Just play as long as I could play there, and and call it call it a day. I, I took over uh, for Dave Marr, Senior. That uh, he used to do the. We had a Champions Clinic at the PGA, 
And Dave, and I think it was 97, the year that Davis Love won at Wingfoot, Dave had cancer and, and could do it. And he said, have Lanny do it. He can, he can do, do the job. So they had me be the MC of the Champions Clinic. Jim Nance was watching that one or the next year. I started doing the clinic every year mm-hmm. for quite a while. That was a fixture back at the PGA back was at past Champions Clinic. That We all showed up. We all did it. The guys wouldn't show up today and do it. But we all came and hit shots and goofed around and had a big time. Uh, and Jim Nance saw me doing it one year and said, you ought to be doing TV. And that's really – First time you thought so about it. So yeah. it was the first time I ever thought about it. Hmm. And then uh, I was playing the senior tour, and I won my first start. Then I had elbow issues my first year – my right and second year on my left elbow. So it was kind of like, I don't like being hurt again. And they, uh, Venturi was about to retire. I guess Jimmy must have mentioned me, and they came to me, and uh, I said, okay. Yeah. What was it like replacing Venturi, who had done it for so well, long? Well, he was an icon, and, yeah. I mean, a, a, a wonderful man, somebody we all looked up to and respected, and uh, not just his announcing career, but his golf career and what he went through to be such a, a, a great champion. Uh, Kenny Venturi was a, spe- was a special person. One of the guys I work with today, John Cook, idolizes Venturi. He was his teacher and mentor, you know, growing up. And, and John's got great stories about Kenny. I knew him, uh, you know, mostly through broadcasting, and we had always gotten along. Um, but uh, I never really got to see him play, so I, I missed that yeah. part of it. But uh, it, it was it was an honor, honestly. And it was I thought I would be there – you know, if I you told me I was only going to be doing it five years at CBS, I probably never would have done it. I thought I was going to be there twenty years because I had to essentially give up my champion PG, my senior tour, Champions Tour career to do that. Mm-hmm. When you started it, was there an indication that you were going to be doing it for twenty years? And what happened? Yeah, it was what, good. I why mean, were you only there five years? I guess is well, part of the story. I, and that's you have to have some suit in New York and figure that out. So I don't know, but I know that uh, when I left, I had three years left on my contract. At, at significant money, more money than I had ever made playing golf. I was going to say, it was what yes, makes it that, very appealing to to be yeah. a broadcaster? Well, it did. It was the you know, I was thinking you know, family wise longevity. I'm going to be home more with my boys. I was an older dad. My boys were in their. I was in my 40s when they were born. Uh, well, at least one of them, my mm-hmm. second one. They were born in uh, 87 and 92. So. You know, I was I got to be home more with them, watch them grow up and play. They both played golf in college, one at Wake Forest, one at Arizona. That was a big attraction to it. And I could still play some. I mean, CBS only did 18. I had time to go play maybe half a dozen to ten tournaments a year if I wanted to. Because so. what's the time commitment for the TV compared to a time commitment for playing on the tour? I mean, you're able to cut a couple days here and there. Yeah, when I play uh, – CBS, I mean, I, it was – I'd go weeks without – playing i think that i mean because it was we we had stretches where we're working and it was you know i didn't really work a lot of uh thursday fridays i was most of the weekend uh so yeah. but it was i was always there and on the course and looking and working and uh well, they don't give you much help you come in there and you know you're expected to do what, what everybody does after a while naturally and it was a uh, it was a learning you know, per- learning it curve. was a big learning curve. Yeah. yeah, the only person that really spent any time and helped me was when I worked with Bill McAtee when he took Jimmy's place. Jimmy and I are great friends. I mean, he did the intro for me to, when I was in, inducted in the Hall of Fame, and we're still great friends. But Bill McAtee took the time to help me. We'd when I worked with Billy, we'd go to the tower 
you know, a couple hours ahead of time and said, you need to build your brand and do this and do that and try and work at stuff. And I think it was, you know, it took a while. And I do know that at the end of 06, when we finished the PGA, Jim Nance came to me and said, you and I have hit our stride. We're exactly where I think we need to be. You're going to be great from here on out. Well, that was the last one I ever did with him. And uh, so that's where it's a confusing story. In reading about it, it's the, you know, CBS, there's a statement. I don't know where the statement comes from, but it says you want to go back to focusing on the Champions Tour, almost as if, like, it, that it was your indication that you wanted to do that. Then at the same time, there's a, a quote from you that says you were completely blindsided by it. Oh, everybody so. was. Lance Barrow was. Jimmy Nance was. I was. I always thought it was kind of peculiar because, I mean, Jim Nance is the voice of CBS Sports. Well, they changed his lead analyst in two sports that year without asking him. Really? They took me away, and they took Billy Parker away from basketball. Huh. You know, put Clark Kellogg in, and then put you know Faldo in. So was it more to do with just they had a window to get Faldo on, and they I knew they wanted him, or you really don't know? I think the one guy hired, you know, Faldo at the time actually had a handshake deal done with NBC and reneged on that to sign the NBC deal when I had still had three years left. Huh. And I was given the option, but I wasn't gonna. Uh, I, I was signed on to be lead analyst. That's all I was going to do, and that was it. So um, I, they bought me out. Are you? Were you bitter about the way that everything went down, or is it an amicable split? I don't know that it was amicable. Um, I would, you know, I mean, like I said, if I'd known I was only going to do it, you yeah. know, five years, five and a half years or so, I probably would not have done it. I thought it was going to be something I was going to do for 20 years. I felt like, like Jimmy said, he said, we are, you know, it took me a couple of years to settle in and start feeling comfortable. I mean, when you've got two different things going on in your head, you've got to say something coherent on the air and make sense. It, it's, it doesn't come naturally. No, that's what I, I – people we, – we are often pretty critical of broadcasts and, and whatnot. And I, I want always – whenever I get a chance to be clear, I say, I don't want that job. Like, it's difficult. It's easy to sit on a podcast and talk for long periods of time. You're not up against any time. There's no one in your ear. But that job is like, well, okay, and go, a lot you're of, on. A lot of what you say is dictated by what's coming from your producer yeah. or someone else. You know, you may not be able to get to where you want to go with something because something's already pre-planned. They want to show a tape shot or something else. So it's not all in your court. To, you know, you're not in control. Yeah. It's, and when you are, when it's your turn, it's almost like pointed to you. And you might, I'm not saying you're not ready, but it's like, all right, go, be on. And you got to say something insightful. Well, and not only that, the other thing that has come, and I think I'm pretty good at it, is getting out when I need to. Mm-hmm. In other words, because all of a sudden I'll be in the middle of something that's, I think, pretty important. And you'll hear a commercial in 10. And I've, you've got to wrap it up in two seconds so Bob Papa can take it to commercial. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> – so that I mean you've got to be able to end whatever you're saying in about two seconds and, and come out of it. Did you have a particular – or do you have – because you're, you're obviously doing the Champions Tour with Golf Channel now. Do you have a particular philosophy or approach to announcing? I, I mean, it's – obviously, you're, you're in the booth for your application of your years of playing professional golf, but – did you have a mindset or a philosophy towards calling Never golf? did, no. I just, just to be honest. I mean, I, I always – I don't think, you you know, with what the guys are playing for these days and what's expected, I don't think you're up there to sugarcoat or, or be f- massive fans of what they're doing. Now, I can be a fan of a player, and I can, you know, give him all the accolades that, you know, he deserves while he's playing. But at the same time, if he makes mistakes that I think – as a player he shouldn't make that may cost him an event or something, I think you got to call him out on it. I mm-hmm. think that's part of the job. It's a uh, tough you, balance. You can't be afraid to 
you know, say negative things about your friends or people you've played with for, you know, I'm doing Champions Tour stuff. I've been playing against a lot of these guys since I've been 16 years old. So it's, you know, and I still get along with them, I think. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I'm not sure in some cases, but. <laughs> Have you had any feedback from anyone or anybody, any relationships get not severed? Really. No, no, I don't think I've had any that are, you know, <laughs> you know any, any big things. And, I mean, I still get along great, for example, with Bernhard Langer. Now, I, you know, I will say, you know, to everybody, I think he's, a, you know, one of the greatest players that's ever played and his work ethic and what he's done. But I will call him out on slow play and yeah. – decisions and the the yippiness of his chipping in a heartbeat i mean i'm not going to back off on that right yeah, and, and, and i don't think just because he's a great player i don't think gives him the right to be that slow mm-hmm. i was a fast player fast players are the ones that always adjust i adjust to what the players around me are doing i have to i don't have a choice slow players play their game they don't ca- they right. l- it, it looks to us faster players i say us I mean, guys like me and Watson and Fuzzy and uh, guys that have always moved along and played at a pretty good pace, Gravino, if you will, it looks to us like they don't care. They're going to play their pace come hell or high water. You pay the and price. Unless somebody puts them on the clock, in which case they always speed up. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's them being inconsiderate. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my philosophy on that. Slow players are the inconsiderate ones. I saw it article recently said fast players are inconsiderate how the hell are we inconsiderate <laughs> you know we're getting on with it doing our job it's just it's no monkey business there's the ball there's the hole hit the shot there might be too many takes in golf if we're at the point i of would like, love oh, the to fast see, players are the ones i would that... love to see uh the greens books go away okay i was gonna that's the next question how do you I, fix it i'd love it? to see greens books i mean watching greens books and i'm watching uh when i was watching the president's cup i'm, I'm watching these kids reading the greens books yeah. I, that's part of golf is reading greens. That's right. that's an innate ability, something you learn how to do and read the grain, the contours, you know, where the fall line is, where the water's going off, the whole deal. You've got to know that stuff, you know, number one. And, and number two, then, I would only allow one book for player and caddy. You know, I watched Langer and, and Terry Holt, and they both have books. And if Terry says something and Langer says something, invariably, well, and Terry will always go, well, we'll go with what you got then why in the hell do you need the other book? <laughs> you know, if that's what they're always going to go with t- with Langer's book, you know, why yeah. not just have the one book per group and make it quicker? You ever see Nicholas or Tiger look at a Greens book ever? Wow. I never thought of that. Think about yeah, it. I never thought of that. You ever, you ever see – what? do you ever see Tiger carry a book? Never no. have. You know, maybe the greatest player of all time. I'm, I'm still going to call Nicholas the greatest player ever, but I'm sitting here – I mean, you watch Tiger. Who's got the book? His caddy. Hmm. That's interesting. Tiger that. If Tiger doesn't need a book and doesn't need a Greens book, why the hell, you know, yeah. should should everybody else have it? Hmm. I do think it. you touched on it there with the, the, the Greens book. I think like 90% of slow play problems in golf are on the Greens. I think that there's the green speed contributes. And when you're in threesomes and that whole axe is like a toll booth and all three cars got to go through it and you can only put one through at a time. And there's almost no gimmies at the green speed that they play no, at. No, no, with green speeds, I mean, when I won the amateur, I thought the greens were – Waverly were the fastest I'd ever seen. They were probably 9 or 10. Yeah. And, I mean, I saw a replay of the putt. I made it 18. It was 20 feet. I took the putter back almost waist high. <laughs> it, it, it looked like hitting this putt from 20 feet. Well, today it would be a little tap. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely different. And the people stand over 
more three and four footers. But it's also, I mean, I preached to my boys from day one. The only reason you three putt is poor speed. Yeah. I don't think you can hit it far enough offline to three putt. If your speed's correct, you're not going to three putt. You're going to walk up, tap it in, and move on. We could challenge you on that last part, but. One uh, one thing you noted, kind of bringing a couple things together here about you know being being critical of players when you have to be. A recent incident that happened on the Champions Tour regarding Billy Mayfair. Can you set the scene for what happened uh, for those that aren't familiar with it and how you how you went about addressing it? Uh, it puts us in a tough spot as announcers when something like that happens. Uh, what happened? A, if you could well, describe uh, it. Well, basically, what happened to put the whole thing right out there was we come on and it's on seventeen. And Billy Mayfair is getting ready to play a pitch. He's missed the green left and the high rough on a slope, pretty severe slope. I've been there. And as he's going up to it, from what we see, the ball moves. And then he turns around, there's an official, and the official comes up and he tells the official, said, I, you know, I didn't get anywhere near it. I had the club hovering above the ball. The ball rolled. And the officials, I don't know if he said play it or, you know, put it back, whatever, ball, you know, no penalty. Well, we go to commercial, come back, and the, our producer goes, you got to see this. We've got – we had the camera on Billy the entire time. He stuck the club in under the ball twice with his right hand. I mean, no question that he grounded the club and caused the ball to move. That's two shots. So, I mean – but he also blatantly lied to the official, which to me is, is egregious. Now, he ended up being disqualified – for a ruling for something he did earlier in the round, which really tops it off. He lost the ball in 11. They looked for it for five minutes. And right at, right before five minutes, they found the ball. He played the hole and played out, finished with that ball, and went and teed off the next hole at 12. The problem with all that is today's rule is three minutes. So at three minutes, that ball is abandoned. So he never really finished that hole and went and played another one. So he was disqualified for that ruling earlier in that round and then the other one on top of that that's just blatant i, I don't know how you get around it any other way yeah. but it, but it's just i mean you sit he knows he stuck the club in there and he turns around and tells the official it was never there and it, it was hovering I, I, do you think that's something that runs uh, and there's a whole nother layer to that and that he i think he claimed he didn't know the new rule was three minutes and then there's quotes from the past where he he is talking about the new rule where three minutes and he so do you think that there are uh, there are a lot of inconsistencies there there's no question yeah and, and that's and where it's not a good look if i'm billy mayfair i'm going to be really uncomfortable coming out playing next year that's that's kind of where i want to get to next too with you know i've always maintained uh, maybe i've kind of fallen into the pr spin of when players call penalty on themselves, everyone is very quick to praise them, and salute, and it makes it look like everyone in golf is following the rules absolutely perfect at all times, and even when no one is watching, they will call a penalty on themselves. And I, the more stuff that happens, like this incident and what recently happened with Patrick Reed, just makes me think, like, whoa, what is what is going on out there? Because it's like the scarlet letter in golf is to be called a cheater. No question. And I, and I will take on the Patrick Reed thing. I had a huge issue with the Australian players calling him a cheater. Really? Down there, yes. Uh, now, I'm not – I don't – you know, I know there's some history somewhere with Patrick Reed. I don't know all the ins and outs of what it is. But if he says he didn't see the sand move, you take him at his word. But then when, as soon as he saw it on tape, you know, he knew – he said, oh, I didn't know I did that. Okay, that's penalty. So it, it was okay. Then it was, it was a rules infraction. Just like he hit it in a hazard and he was penalized for it, it should be move on. 
to me, that's not cheating. Cheating is a guy from my Q school that got in a tournament, I think it was New Orleans, and he was missing the cut. The other two, his other two competitors, this is a kid from Columbia that made our Q school. Mm-hmm. He, cha- he erased and changed two scores so that he made the cut. And the other players he was playing with see it. He's, what's he doing playing? He missed the cut. And they go back, and sure enough, they see the erasure. That's cheating. Yeah. He was banned from the tour, banned from the South American tour. That's cheating. That's not, you know, breaking a rule is breaking a rule, and you get penalized for it, and you move on. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, everybody can have their own thoughts about Patrick Reed, but essentially all he did was break a rule, and he got penalized for it. Mm-hmm. He didn't cheat because he was penalized for breaking a rule. And that's where my – I was very careful, like – in the way we phrased the discussion too, of why I I did think it was cheating because I know his word says that he didn't know that he did that, but you watch the tape and it's professional golfers touch and feel is unbelievable. I mean, the things that you can feel now, if it's something, if he's in a bunker and he takes the club back and it grazes the sand yeah. on his way back and he well, doesn't I mean, see and it. I don't know how much he, you know, he, from his angle, now, the camera angle is from behind the club. Yeah. So whatever moves, is we're going to see it. And he's up above it, and whatever's moving, well, his club head is in the way of that. Yeah. So he may not see it. Now, feel it? I don't know. That's, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a, it's a tough scenario all around. It's, uh, it's, it's a weird – there's no right answer to it, right? Because I think by the, by the biggest technicality in the letter of the law, he served his, his punishment on that. But – a lot of other people see it very differently, and uh, I, if that's the kind of thing that is happening on tour, that I think is a, is an issue. If it's that blatant and it, it's that obvious with a camera right there, that that's, well, and that's the other different. thing that happens, and I've always felt, you know, one of the the tough things. That's why I really have always disagreed with people calling in, because only the people on camera are, sub, totally are subject yeah. to that scrutiny. Yep. And if every player on every shot was subject to that scrutiny, okay, then so be it. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are probably things that happened. Had, I mean, Patrick Reed, for example, if he had done that and it hadn't been on TV, nobody would have ever known it. Right. And, and, whether, and, and he, and honestly, give him the benefit of the doubt, he may not have known that he did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah, I mean, no. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, you think, you know, it moved a little bit of sand, but if your club's there, and the sand's moving as it goes back. Then the sand is un- it's moving is underneath the club. I mean, I wouldn't. I don't. I didn't see the sense in grinding the club anyway. The lie was so bad. All you could do was gouge it out. It made no sense. He wasn't. You know, I, whatever little bit of sand he moved didn't make the shot easier. Yeah. Okay. What? Uh, I'm just saying, right or wrong. I mean, no, no, I, I understand. Just, yeah, it's it's that's where it's like to me. Know. That's. That's a rules infraction. Yeah, I I, I understand. I, I definitely see that. I think. Now, it, I think people intent are, are is using... so hard to improve. Uh, uh, intent is so hard to prove, and when you combine some other the other stories that are there out there about him, it's hard to think that he's not capable of that. So he loses some of the benefit of the doubt in my mind. I think, but that's a that's a separate discussion. But you've uh, you the main reason why we're here. You know, we want to talk to you about the Ryder Cup. You've had an extremely storied Ryder Cup career. And, you know, it's kind of uh, indicative, not indicative, I guess, of a lot of your career, but just kind of something for my generation. you got to really seek the, some of these things out to know about them, <laughs> such as the 1983 Ryder Cup at PGA National. 
take us to what happened there down the stretch and uh, who the hero of that one was. Well, it was uh, it, it was basically down to uh, we needed the two, last two Americans on the course were Tom Watson and myself. Watson's playing Bernard Gallagher. He's two up and two to play. He needs to win. I'm one down playing 18, and I've had a match. I'm playing Jose Maria Canizares. I've had a match. I should have beat him five and four. I mean, he hold it from all over the place. First hole is a great example. I had a six-footer for birdie. He's got a 50-footer for par. We tie the hole. I mean, that, that happened all day long. I'm one down going to 16. I hit two iron 12 feet behind the hole. He hits it in the lake to the right. The ball is moving in the water, and he chops it out of the water on the green, 40 feet, holds it. I missed the 12-footer. We tie that hole. I actually made a six-footer at 17 to stay alive. Jeez. So, I mean, all this is going on. We get to 18, and they, the whole, everybody is there and said, you have to win this hole for us to win. And I, I've got the whole team there except for Watson. I mean, i got Fuzzy and Curtis and Kite and Jay Haas. They're all there, you know, watching Jack's me play this captain. hole. And, I, and Jack's there, captain. Yeah, he's not intimidating at all. <laughs> I hit a really good drive at 18. Uh, actually hit it past Canizares. He hit three wood in this – the hole back then was a little different than it is now. There was a bit of water you had to hit over the corner or you could lay up short and hit a longer shot in there. He hit a great three wood, so it kind of forced me into being aggressive anyway. And I remember I hit three wood second shot right over the corner of the water. It's I hammered it, and Curtis Strange starts yelling at my ball, get up, get up. I said, don't worry, it's solid. So, I mean, so and I had 72 yards left of the flag. I'm, Ken Azaris was away. He kind of hit it fat to the front edge of the green. And then I had 72 yards and whole locations back up on top of a little uh, ridge. And I drove a little low 56 degree sandwich in there, skipped it right back to about a foot. And uh, game, set, and match. Won the Ryder Cup. <laughs> that was it. We won 14 and a half, 13 and a half. Most nervous you've ever been over a shot? Probably. Although I've always thought that my pace of play helped me in situations like that. A lot of times before I could think of the of the magnitude of what I'm doing, I've already hit the shot. Hmm. There are times in my career that I hit a shot, I'd be sitting there thinking, man, I need to make birdie to win or I've got to hit this close. And halfway through thinking about that, I, never mind, the ball's already in the air going at the flag. You know, I hit it on I hit I hit it a lot of times on autopilot. I played that fast. Hmm. I think that was one of those shots. I saw what I wanted to do. I knew the shot I wanted to hit, and then just I kind of did it before I knew what I was doing, if you will. I was nervous, but I will say this: I took that shot that I was probably the most nervous I've ever been hitting any shot was that one, and I've channeled that into my career later. That if I can do that, I can handle anything else that comes down the line. Let's so say your reaction after that was just a look of oh. just determination, and just it wasn't really even relief. It was just like yes, yeah. kind of Well, and I went. Up. I remember going up to the edge of the green. Kite slapped me on the back. I mean, way to go! And I went to say something, and nothing came out. Really? Yeah, it was kind of wild. So. <laughs> and I must admit that that was the best celebration of all time with Nicholas that night. It was. It was that well, okay. Well, let's that stop was, right there. Then. Well, what was, what did that? What was that? What did that look like? It started with when, when Fuzzy grabbed a magnum of champagne in the team room and, and sprayed the crowd. It was became an instant wet T-shirt contest for the wives. I mean, it was uh, – I, I grabbed a bottle of champagne. If you remember who Joe Black was with the PGA, very staid, straight. I grabbed him behind the collar, poured a whole bottle of champagne down his back. We're drinking from the Ryder Cup uh, – 
Nicholas waterboarded his barber with the Ryder Cup. I mean, he he's he's like, you know, he, it's full of champagne. Barbara, have a sip of, from the Ryder Cup, sure. And he, as she took a sip, he grabbed her head and dumped the whole thing. I mean, it was it was Jack Nicholas. Yeah, Jack waterboarded Barbara with the Ryder Cup. I mean, it was the damnedest thing you've ever seen. So it was uh, it was good stuff, but it was. Had a picture of Jack with a champagne cork in his mouth holding the cup. I mean, it was, there was some really cool stuff from that, that. It was quite a party. The damnedest thing was, we all went and cleaned up. We destroyed this suite at BJ. That you know, we go to the dinner. We come back. This suite is they've cleaned it up. It's perfect, and we went at it again. <laughs> I remember carrying Crenshaw time. and laying him on his bed. Really? Yeah. I mean, literally, he couldn't. He couldn't talk. I mean, it was it was quite a night. It was a hell of a celebration. What what makes people so much more relaxed in that setting, or what is it? Just the opportunity to to share an actual victory with people that you want it with. You know, we had a team, a lot of good friends on that on that team. I mean, you know, we're three Wake Forest guys on that team: mm-hmm. Jay Haas, Curtis Strange, and myself. We had that in common. Ben and I have been friends. Uh, Jack and I were friends. I mean, I look at who's on that team. Fuzzy was a friend. Yeah, I mean. We were all pretty close back then, you know, much like the young guys are today, okay? We were all about the same age. We were all pretty well established in our careers at that time. I'm trying to think if there was anybody on that team that was maybe a rookie. Gil Morgan was there, played well. He played with my partner in one of the matches. Uh, but, you know, overall it was like a bunch of guys that were had very similar careers at that point in time. Yeah. What's your favorite go-to Ryder Cup story? Your favorite memory, favorite go-to story? May have already told it on here, but. Well, I mean, I've always, you know, because he was such an integral part of it, it's probably always Seve. You had to get back in his face. You could not let him intimidate you. I was going to say, did you ever have any personal run-ins? Yeah. First hole, 1985, I think, where I'm playing with Marco Mira in the morning the second day. At the Belfry, uh, playing the, sec- the second day at the Belfry in the morning, Marco Mary and I were playing Seve and I think Manuel Panero going there on the first hole, best ball. We get on the green, and I've got about a 20, 25 footer for birdie. Seve's about 12 feet. His coin's in my line. I had him move it. I pulled my putt. It hit his coin. It bounced right. Went in the hole. He was livid. You had me. You had me do that on purpose. You had me move my coin so you could make that putt. I said, yes. I got right in his face. I said, yes, Evie, I'm that blanking good. Don't forget it. <laughs> first hole. This is O'Meara's first Ryder Cup match ever. He gets as white as a sheet standing on the first green line. What's going on? I said, love it. Let's go kick. The-. We had him six down and six to play. Oh, my God. That's amazing. But we, the first hole, I pull a putt, hit his coin, goes and he just – I did it on purpose because the only way I could make the putt was aim at a dime, you <laughs> know, say. over here 15 feet from me. I'm going to try and bank it off this dime to get it in the hole. Yeah, right. I'm that good. So I, I got right. I said, yeah, I'm that good. Don't forget it. You know, just right <laughs> in his face. Well, Zinger tells a story, too, of at the Belfry. Um, I forget who was who was. Somebody came up to him before. He's getting ready to play Seve. And before the match, somebody comes up to him and says, uh, don't let him pull any stuff on you. And so, like, the second hole, he has a scuff on his ball, and, and Seve's like, I, I'm taking this ball out of play, and Zinger wouldn't let him do it, 
when like he look looking back, he's like, yeah, I probably should have let him, but I had this mindset of like, I'm not letting him get away with anything. So, yeah. I mean, how where does it start? I mean, how much of a reputation do you, do you already have to have? Well, he had a, he had it back from day one. I mean, I played him, I played him four times in Ryder Cup, and I was four and zero against him. So that was a good start. So uh, Larry Nelson, I beat he and uh, Antonio Garrido uh, three straight matches in '79. So, you know, and then Larry beat him in singles. So, Seve's very first Ryder Cup ever, he lost four matches mm -hmm. to start. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but you had to, you, you, you know, he, he just was, I know when I was captain, Tom Lehman was going off first against him, and Curtis Strange and I both got Lehman, and we told him, we said, he is going to pull something. Go right back at him. Don't let him get the upper hand. It won't make sense what he's trying to do, but just go right back after him. And he did on the 12th hole, and Lehman went right back after him. Lehman beat him. Hmm. I was going to say, it's always just weird to me how how that approach almost gets celebrated, you know? And it sounds like, from from your perspective, it's not something that should be praised nearly as much as no, it is. No, not yeah. at all. I, I, I think it's – I think a lot of the antagonism in the Ryder Cup came from, from Seve's behavior, you know, being in everybody's business. I think, you know, he – what the things he did would probably tick us off so much that you know we would get more upset at, at what was happening, and you get more defensive on stuff. So there's no question, you know that. I mean, I think he was. If there had to be an antagonist going back in all the Ryder Cups and when everything started, I think the arrow points, you know, directly at Seve and no one else. First time that he played in '79, Larry Nelson and I played him. Uh, and each time we played he and Garrido, we beat him worse each time. Uh, we beat him two and one, then we beat him, I think, three and two. Then uh, when we beat him five and four in auction shot, that, that, that was a day I'll never forget because uh, we're playing in, in the afternoon, and I birdied the first five holes. Larry birdied six. I birdied seven. Larry eagled eight. We were nine under through eight holes. We ended up, you know, I had a two-footer. I had a two-putt from two feet to close them out five and three or five and four, whatever it was. Well, Seve didn't give it to me, so I, I just knew that was I coming. just I just backhanded it in. <laughs> you did backhand. Oh yeah. Hundred <laughs> percent. Did you tell him you're that bleeping good? <laughs> I told him that later. Uh, that was at the Belfry with with O'Meara and that and that but I mean that was just and the cool thing about that was after I told him that, I got Mark kinda turned on. We lit it up. We were six up and six to play. They won a couple of holes to stay alive, but we, you know, we were going to win. All we had to do was tie one hole of the last six holes, so we, you know, we were up there. So it was, that was always those are the ones I remember. Those were the fun parts, the, the good ones, the, the the celebration stories with Nicholas at, at PGA in, in '83. We got to see a side of Jack people don't normally see. Let his hair down, so to speak. We had dinner at their the entire team, you know, has dinners every night starting on. What is it, Friday night or, or before, I guess Thursday night before the first round? So we had three straight nights of dinners at Jack's house. He was that close to where we were playing. So instead of having eating in a team room or right there, we went to his house every night for a little cookout. Wow. Now that was seriously cool. Yeah. You know, and we're all, and the interesting, interesting thing about Jack's house, we're walking around, where's your stuff? He didn't have half his trophies out. I mean, we're, everybody wants to see the different trophy. Nothing's out. It's like, come on, man. <laughs> it's got them stored away somewhere in the garage. Well, I was – when I was talking to IMG about going with them, I was in New York talking to Mark McCormick way back in the early 70s. 
and he said, you know, he's trying to impress me. You know, like, this is Arnold Palmer's office over here. Well, like, Arnold's got an office everywhere that they've got a building, right? So, so he, and he opened the closet door. There's a master's replica sitting in the closet on the shelf. I thought, what's it in there for? <laughs> you know, I mean, the things you see, and uh, it's anyway, it's kind of different. Last, I want to end it with this, and then uh, we'll let you go. But uh, you were inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2009, and it seemed like from from reading quotes, you had kind of uh, you were kind of past it at a certain point. As as far as you said, it, something about it losing its luster, getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. What, what's the context of that? Number one, I don't know that I felt like I ever belonged in a Hall of Fame with Lee Trevino, Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, Hogan, Sneed, you know Watson at all. Even though Watson our peers, I why th- is that? I well, I just think they what they've done is so much more outstanding than what I did. I, I you know, I had a nice career. It could have been better if I'd put it better in places, done certain things at certain times. It would have been even better. But it was. I, I'm proud of the longevity. The fact that I won in 70s, 80s, 90s, and two. I won in four different decades. I thought that was really cool. Uh, the amount of wins. Uh, I won around the world. Won another, you know, half dozen times overseas. Uh, the rider, number of Ryder Cups, all that stuff was really cool. But, I mean, I mean, I look, I'm sitting right here staring at a picture of Byron Nelson. I mean, for, you know, heaven's sakes. I mean, think of what he did. You know, there should be maybe another Hall of Fame for people like that. They, they, were, they were so special and meant so much to this game. But then I think along the early 2000s when uh, Crenshaw, Kite, and Curtis got in, I thought, you know, I'll take my career as well as theirs than I deserve to be in. So that was kind of – you know, and maybe I wasn't as popular a player or a person as some of the, as you know Crenshaw was or Kite or Curtis, whatever. But uh, I'm not. I don't think my career takes a backseat to theirs in any way, shape, or form. Yep. No, that makes makes sense when you definitely when you compare the records and and whatnot. So, all right, Lanny, thank you so much for letting us come down here and do this interview. This was an absolute blast, and uh, can't wait for uh, for the listeners to hear this one. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. Good yep. to be with you guys. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. 